for this week. However dark the clouds come, there's always sunshine above the clouds. And as we get up into heaven, there's never a shadow. And that's why we all want to go there, don't we? Where his light fills, he himself, the one who lives in us, fills the whole of heaven with his light. Isn't it incredible? Isn't it wonderful? We're just looking forward, aren't we? To go up there, but we've got a job to do before we get there. <laughs> and our job is to follow him. Two words, big implications. <laughs> follow him. That's all he said. Follow me, he said. Just follow me. Just follow me. Hallelujah. Well, as we go through life, things happen. And we have to deal with them, don't we? Things happen, stuff happens, because we live in this world. Things happen with our bodies. They're fallen, and they break down, fall apart, bits fall off. <laughs> well, <laughs> maybe not, but you feel as they're going to. <laughs> and you think, oh, I can't wait to get rid of this body and get into heaven and not have to worry about when I want to go and do something. I have to drag his body everywhere. Well, we'll just be able to think. I, and we'll be there, I think, when we're that. We'll be like Jesus. Just, I want to be in the upper room. There he was. But we have, now we have to contend with life. And the, we've been in Hebrews a lot this week, and the Lord is, well, I was in Hebrews before we even got here. And uh, there was a verse... One verse, which is a very famous verse, and it's in Hebrews 13, verse 8. Very, very well-known verse. Jesus Christ, the same, yesterday, today, forever. Wow. What a statement about this Jesus. Somebody said uh, earlier on, God does not change. I change not. I don't change in the way I think about you. I don't change in any way. My promises, everything about me, I don't change. We change all the time. Every day we feel different. Every morning we wake up, we feel different. We have to go, oh. <laughs> and we get ourselves together. And we change. Our moods, everything changes. But he never changes. He never changed while he was here on earth. He, did ex he never changed. from He set his face like a flint to do the job he was given and never changed from it. He never deviated. Not, uh, not once. That's, an am that's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. That's our Jesus. He just obeyed his father. But why was this verse here? And I started reading and trying to put it in a context where it is and it seems you think, hang on. It doesn't seem to be in any for any run of an idea. Because normally you look before and you look after and you think, well, is there a flow through here? And it almost appears, you think, well, hang on, maybe it should be in the verse before. Because the verse before is talking about, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say the Lord is a helper. 
and I will not fear what man may do unto me. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. That would fit in really well. But then he goes and talks about, remember those who have rule over you. You think, well, what is he doing here? And I think the Holy Spirit here, he's just suddenly, out of the situation he's dealing with, this comes, just comes out of him. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Because in the Hebrews, they were have in Hebrews, they were dealing with a specific problem. And the problem was the Judaizers, the Judaizers, those who wanted the Christian Jews to become more Jewish. They wanted them to go into the sacrifices. Paul had lots of problems, remember, in Galatians, where they wanted the people who weren't Jews, the Gentiles, to be circumcised, to become like Jews. He said, no, that's no good. You've got to keep the whole law. And here again, he had the same problem. They were really, really pressurizing them and putting them up. And some of them were going back and going and get back into the sacrifices and this and the other because they felt they've got to keep the law. And even now, you go and look a lot on these messianic websites and they're telling you you've got to keep the whole law and you've got to do this you got to do that, and you've got to do all the other stuff. And it's wrong. And they were pressurizing them, and they were under enormous pressure. So this was written to help them understand who Jesus was. Who is this Jesus? And we find, right in the very first verse, about who this Jesus is. And he's challenging them, because the people who were pushing this they would come from their Jewish background. We have the oracles of God. We, have, we are the top men, people in the world. We've been chosen by God. So if he's chosen us, then he hasn't changed anything because he, his word is eternal. And you know this type of idea that they were pushing their own, what they were, their background. And even though it was a fantastic background, he had been done away with. And this is what he talks about. He talks about in the first chapter, verse 1, which Gordon read. God, who at sundry times and in various manners spoke in times past unto the fathers by the prophets. So they looked at the prophets all the time. Hath in these last days spoken to us by a son. Just says, by son, by his son. And so immediately he's saying... He is bigger and better than the prophets. The whole of Hebrews is about being better and greater. He had, we had, remember, I don't want to remember to lose, he had greater than the prophets, greater than the angels. Jesus was greater than the angels, because that's the rest of chapter 1. We get loads of verses that he shows that he's greater. Jesus is greater than the angels. He's greater than Abraham. He's greater than Moses. All these people in Hebrews, he said, this Jesus is greater than all these. Though you look to these, Jesus is greater than all these people. And not only is he greater than all these people, he comes with better covenants, Better promises, better sanctuary, and better sacrifices, and a better a lot of other stuff. <laughs> it's all better. It's better than you had before. And you see, done away with the old because it was a feeble of the, in the flesh to do and put it in the spirit, which lives forever. And that's why he talks about Jesus Christ, the same 
yesterday, today and forever. Because they were dealing with things that were temporal. The whole lot of the tabernacle is all temporal. It only shows a picture of the eternal. And it was all temporal. And it was done away with, and Jesus is eternal, because he's from heaven. He's the eternal one from heaven, the holy one from heaven who is eternal. The same yesterday, today, and forever. And that's the wonderful thing about what we have, is he's eternal. And it's secure, and we'll see this in all these different things. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He came as a mediator. Let's read that in Hebrews 8, verse 6. And we'll see that he was a greater mediator than the mediators we'd had in the past. 8, verse 6. Now he hath obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant. So it's more excellent ministry and a better covenant. He has established that. He's a mediator. Now, what is a mediator? Someone who stands in between, isn't he? Someone who stands in between. We can see uh, he's mentioned quite a few more times in uh, 9.15. He is the mediator of a New Testament that by means of death for the redemption and transgressions that were under the First Testament, that which were called might receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. It's not temporal it's eternal inheritance. In uh, 12.24, we read, where is it? Now I've got that wrong there. That's not the right one. Don't worry. Oh, no, yes. Now to Jesus. We come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. And every time it talks about the mediator in here, it talks about the mediator of a new covenant, which is what we're in. We're in a new covenant. It's brand spanking new. It is. It's new. It's new to us. It was never new to God because it's always been in God's mind, but it's new to us. He said, I'll make a new covenant with us. He's always been God's representative, this Jesus. He's always been the mediator. He's always been the one who comes down. Because we can't, no one's seen God at any time. So no one's seen God the Father. God the Spirit, you can't see him, he's a spirit. So the one we see, who talked with Adam in the garden, was Jesus. He's the one, he's always been the one. He's the one, he's the one who, who, um, who talked with, a with Abraham. He's the one who talked with anybody in the Old Testament who, who God talks to, when Moses saw the burning bush, it was Jesus in the bush. It was the fire of the living God in the bush, the Holy One of Israel. That's why he had to take his shoes off, because it was the Holy One of Israel. He was the one who spoke to Noah. He's been the mediator all the time. He's been the one, the part of the Godhead, who comes to deal with us, who comes to deal with things on the earth. You see, in the, in the garden... He, he, he walked with them, but then he was the one who killed the, uh, the animal to clothe them. You see? He's, he's always been the mediator between us and God. He's a wonderful mediator, and he's the mediator of this new covenant. He's always come, when he comes in a person, which we call a Christophany, that's him too. He appeared to Hagar 
as a person, didn't he? And he's, he, as far as we know, he's the first one. Imagine God appearing, the first time he appears in a Christophany, he appears to Hagar. He doesn't appear to Abraham first. He appears to Hagar when she, when she runs out and he said, go back, didn't he? God spoke to her. He, he spoke to Abraham when he came. Remember when he came, the three angels came and the other two went off and he called him the Lord. That was him. That was Jesus, our Jesus. He came, he mediated, he came and spoke and mediated with Abraham there. Remember, he talked with him and he mediated between him and God. Who, who was he going to destroy? He's always been our mediator. He's always been the one who, and we can go through with Jacob, with Gideon, and in the fiery furnace, with Joshua, all these things where he comes in a, in a physical form in the Old Testament. So he's always been a mediator. But he has come with a new covenant. He's this mediator of the new covenant. He's the one between us and God. He's our mediator. He stands on in between us and God. And he's a mediator of this new covenant which we have. But we know that there are lots of types of covenant and some of them are unconditional covenants and some are conditional. The unconditional covenants, we get Noah. Now he spoke to Noah and he said, Let's, can we read some of these, shall we? It's good to read them. I could have just speak through them, but we just read one or two. Can't read every verse because else we'll be here all day. <laughs> um, every illustration. Genesis. Genesis 9, 8. And God spake unto Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you and with every living creature that is with you, the fowl of the cattle, of every beast of the field with you, and all that go out of the ark and every beast of the earth. And I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off any more from the waters of the flood, neither shall there be any more flood to destroy the earth. And then he said, in verse 13, he set my bow in the heavens as a, a sign of the covenant. All right? Now, has God broken that covenant? No. Because he made it. He made it with himself. He didn't ask Noah to do anything. There was nothing for Noah to do. It was just that God made a covenant, said, I'll do this, and he has done it, hasn't he? And we're here to testify that he's kept his word. Isn't it incredible? We can look at this earth and say, he hasn't fathered it again. We can know that he keeps his covenant. So we know in our lives, when we see the rainbow, we can say, God keeps his covenant. Isn't it wonderful? With Abraham, again, he made an unconditional covenant. Let's read that in, in, in uh, go over to chapter 18. Is it 18? Now, 15, going too far ahead. And uh, the Lord appeared to Abraham in verse 1, saying, Fear not, you know, in a vision, he, he appeared to Abraham and spoke to him. And then he, he told him what to do. And uh, he did what he was told. He took some, right down in verse 10, 
Um, he, he took these animals and uh, doves uh, and he divided them in verse 10 of chapter 15 and he laid each piece one against the other but the birds divided he not and when the fowls came down on the carcasses Abraham drove them away when the sun was going into a deep he, down a deep sleep fell upon Abraham and a lower horror of great darkness fell upon him And he said unto Abraham, Know of a surety that the seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and they shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years, and also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and after they shall come up with great substance. And they shall go, and thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good old age, but in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And then he says, It came, it came to pass. The sun went down, it was dark, and the smoking furnace and the burning lamp, which speaks of the, the presence of God, the, the, the cloud of God, and the fire of God going through there. And then he said, In the same, he passed between the pieces, and the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt. And he goes through the rest of the covenant. All right? Now, was Abraham anywhere, near, anywhere in that covenant? No. All he did was prepare, prepare the animals. God put him to sleep and made his covenant with himself. He went down through there. It's a picture of Christ going down between, his presence going down between the slain lamb. It's a, it's, a, it's a picture of God making the covenant with Jesus that he made with us when he went on the cross. You see, it's the presence of God went down between the sacrifice. He made the covenant with Abraham. And it was nothing to do with Abraham at all. Abraham was asleep. <laughs> and when God made a covenant with us, you were asleep. In fact, you were dead. <laughs> when he made the covenant. In fact, he made the covenant before you were born, but that's before, before we even made the earth, but that's another matter. You see, these covenant is so important to know how secure we are in God. Because Jesus... This doesn't change. His covenant never changes. Never changes to us. That's why he keeps saying this Jesus doesn't change. Amen. Now, with Moses, he made a different type of covenant. And they said, the Ten Commandments came down. He spoke them out from the mount, and then all the other commandments came. And they said, we will keep and do the command." But it was the worst thing they could ever have done. They should have said, that's too much for us, Lord, help us. And God would have done something different. But they said, no, 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 we can do that. We can do that. Like most Christians, we can do this. We can do that. And dum. Don't do they. Can't do it. You see? And that's what happens. It says it was weak. In Romans, it talks about it was weak through the flesh. Because they were expected to do something. But one thing, if you read in, in uh, Exodus 20, 20, he said, oh, this I gave to you to prove you. What? To prove that you can't keep it. And that's what Paul says in Romans. He said that it was a schoolmaster. It was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. That was at Galatians, but wherever it is. Yeah, it's a schoolmaster. People think they've got to keep the law. But the law was to bring us to Christ, to say, help! I can't do it. <laughs> help! I can't do it. Jesus was the only one who could do it because he was divine. He was perfect. 
But we can't do it in ourselves, can we? But he did it for us. And that's why he made covenants with people that were unconditional. The other covenant he made with Abraham, and it talks about it in Hebrews, um, in Hebrews 6. Hallelujah. Isn't he wonderful? Hebrews 6. Why would God have to make a co- come and make covenants with us? Didn't have to, did he? Didn't have to at all. That's the grace of God. Grace always comes before the law and works. Always. Grace is always there before. He came with grace and truth. He didn't come with truth first to whack us over the head. Grace is always there before before the law was given, before the instructions were given to, um, to uh, Adam, he said he'd already was slain before the foundation of the world. It was already done. He'd already planned it. The grace was already there. It's now a wonderful thought. Hallelujah. Where was I going to? <laughs> I've lost myself there. Oh, yeah, Hebrews 6, where again we hear about this covenant with Abraham. That was the covenant he made then. But earlier on, it says in, uh, in verses... Where are we? I've lost my... I've got so many... 13. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. So after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater for an oath of confirmation to them to the end of strife, wherein God, willing more abundantly, show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his, count, of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, which by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie. We might have a strong consolation, who have fled for, red, for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. So what's he saying there? He had two immutable things. One, that God said I made an oath, and that God can't lie. That's the two immutable things. Took me a while to find that out. Two immutable things. God made an oath, and God can't lie. Wow. Isn't that wonderful? He made an oath, and he can't lie. He can't lie to us. God does not lie. He's not the author of lies. There's no, no untruth in him. So he wrote in Hebrews 8, 8 to 13, we get this new covenant. So he said in verse 8 of 8, he said he found fault with the old covenant. So he said, I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day when I took them out of the land and to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant and I regarded them not Seth the Lord. So they're saying, the covenant I made with them, they couldn't keep. Well, you know, as soon as they got it, they, they were doing it all the way through, and all had all, all to be destroyed. And even then, when they wanted to, you know, it, it was all this covenant, they couldn't keep it. They kept not keeping the law. They ended up going into rebellion and had to be dragged off. So this, he had to send this king in or that person in to beat them up a bit more, to make, you know, to get them to listen to God and prophets and all the things that he gave them and sent them and they kept saying I'm married to you and you go off like a harlot all the time serving other gods they couldn't do it 
They couldn't keep the covenant, and we can't. We can't keep that covenant, that law. So because of that, he said, I'll do a new covenant. And this is the covenant. This is one of my favorite passages. It comes from Jeremiah 31. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, said the Lord, I will put my laws in their mind. I'll write them in their hearts. I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities, will I remember no more. In that he saith a new covenant, then he's made the first old, and which is decaying, waxing old, and is ready to vanish away. And that was ready to vanish away, because not long after they destroyed the temple and it went. The whole lot went. But here we have a new covenant. He said, I'll make a covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now, hang on, you think, well, hang on, he's making another covenant with these people. But when you carefully find out, actually, this is the reason Jesus is a Jew. Because the covenant is made with Jesus, not made with the Jews. It's the house. He is the one who the covenant was made with. He's the mediator of the new covenant. It wasn't the Jews, it was him. Though he made it with them, he was the mediator of it, the new covenant. It was all about him, because he was the one who could keep the law. So he made it with Jesus, because he couldn't fail. Else it would be, he wouldn't be an everlasting covenant. It'd fail again because of the flesh. And because Jesus was perfect and was from God, then it could be ratified as an everlasting covenant with us. Isn't that wonderful? It's because he's the same yesterday, today and forever. He doesn't change. He's always perfect. He's always whole. Let's go on and read in verse 7, in chapter 7, verse 22. He talks about sparing uh, he would not repent after the order of Melchizedek. I'm, if I just say a thing, it's, I'm in that Hebrew still. So much was Jesus made a surety a surety of a better covenant. And that proves to me that it's on Jesus' shoulder, this covenant, because he's a surety. Now, what's a surety? Let's go back into Genesis. It's only mentioned a few times in the Bible. Genesis 43, 9. He's a surety of the new covenant. Genesis 43, 9. Now, remember, that they were in it, they were, the Benjamin was sent to Egypt and they wanted to keep him behind. I think that's what the story is. And he said, I will, uh, Judah said, I will be a surety for him. Of my hand shall they require him if I bring him not unto thee and set him before thee let me bear the blame forever. So Judah there was a surety for his brother. Yeah? And Jesus is a surety for us. So when any, the enemy comes along, he says, no. I'm a surety for that man. He's not yours. He keeps us. Because he said he'd do. He's a surety of the new covenant that we're in. He keeps it. Not us. We enter into it. And have the benefits of it, but he is the one 
who is the surety of the new covenant. And that is so fantastic because he's, he is same. He doesn't change. He's not ever not going to suddenly think, oh, I've changed my mind about this now. I'm, you, know, you know what happens, you, know, you, you organise a holiday with somebody. And you're all going to go and do something and then about a week or two before you're going to go, I've changed my mind. <laughs> well, God isn't like that. He doesn't let us down. You know, or you say you, somebody's going to come and do something for it, and they change their mind and ring up and say, no, I can't, I can't come now, I can't do that. And they change their mind. I don't feel like it at the moment. He isn't like that. He is sure. He is a surety. He's put his life at risk. He put his life and his reputation on the line that he will never let us down. He is the surety of the new covenant. So he's this mediator, the one between us, and he's the surety. It's all about Jesus. Because he's more than all the others put together. The whole of the law and all the whole lot. It's all about him anyway, but he's above and beyond and better than it all. So he bought these better covenants. He is a better high priest. We've had, now, what is the job of a high priest? Let's look in Hebrews 5, and he gives a little description of a job of a high priest. Every high priest taken from our men is ordained for men in, for, in things pertaining to God that he may offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. And he can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way. For he himself is also compassed, compassed with, with infirmity. So what he's saying is the, 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 the priests, they too had to go in and be... Have, to do all the washings, they were just men like we are. And so he, you know, and they stand between us and God. And they, they are the ones who go before God. God ordained these Levites to go before God on our on the, on the Jew, Jews' behalf. All right. So that's what a priest priest job is. It's very simple, isn't it? Really, gifts and sacrifice. Hallelujah. So Jesus became our high priest, and here we have. In chapter, chapter 6, so 5, 6, and 6 to 10, he said in another place, Thou art a priest after the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he offered up prayers, and, 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 and uh, Gordon spoke about this, that with strong cryings and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and in, in heard him in that he feared. Though he were a son, yet he learned obedience for which he, which he suffered. So God has called him a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And shall we go on to verse 20 of chapter 6? Whether the forerunner for us has entered, even Jesus made a high priest forever, forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation, king of righteousness, after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days, nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a, a priest continually, 
Hallelujah. We have a continual priesthood, haven't we? An absolute continual priesthood who understands the way we feel. He lived on this earth for 30 years as a human being. Just, he was so much like everybody else that they say, this is, this is only Joseph's son. Because he lived and experienced all the stuff that we experience. I, I think he lost his father because we'd never hear of Joseph anymore. I think all sorts of things happened. That would have been quite a big thing in those days to lose your father because, you know, the way the system was. And only having, a, you know, a mother to look up. And all these things, don't we? He lived and he, he experienced it all and he experienced sin. The, the, the pull of his the pull. Of, of, of his flesh to do wrong things but he didn't do it once he didn't do it once didn't do it once did he he was perfect pure holy and this is my beloved son he said whom whom I the living God am well pleased which means he didn't do one thing he said he was without sin who knew no sin he didn't know sin even it wasn't part of his nature he could have been. He could have done wrong in some way as a human being, but he didn't because of us. Isn't that wonderful? And he became our high priest. And isn't that wonderful? And this high priest, Melchizedek, it comes from Psalm 110.4, where God speaks out this oath about Melchizedek. And he said, I've made an oath about this Melchizedek that, he's, that the new there's going to be an order of, some, of, of priesthood which is coming after, after the order of Melchizedek, you see. So when we see that Jesus, who is not a priest in the priestly line, is he? He's of the house of Judah. So, we can read that in Hebrews. It's, quite, it's a bit complicated when you read it. It's, you know, but... He said it's after a different order, a completely different order, and it was a much more superior priesthood. Why was it superior? It was superior because they had to, they paid tithes to Abraham. Abraham, sorry, Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. Now here is a, a way of God's thinking. When they paid tithes, when Abraham paid tithes, and he was blessed by Melchizedek, all the people in his loins did the same thing. So Aaron and Levi, who the priesthood was in, did the obedience to Melchizedek by receiving blessing and giving tithes. So, so the Melchizedek priesthood is greater because these people, the Levites, were... were, were not, you know, were giving tithes. You only give tithes to a person who's greater and you only get blessing from someone who's greater than you. Don't you? So he was a greater priesthood. A different priesthood. Something completely different. You see. And that's how Jesus is this priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. It's a different priesthood because it's a priesthood of eternal priesthood, isn't it? It's a wonderful priesthood. Now, this is, this is about God's counting. 
Now, God's counting is different to our counting. So can you see that when, they, when Abraham was blessed and when he gave tithes to Melchizedek, all his descendants did the same. Do you see that, how, how that works? And it's exactly the same thing. When Adam fell, we fell. It's exactly the same principle. We fell in Adam. The same as they, when, they, when he bowed down to Melchizedek and, received, and gave tithes, they did. When Adam gave obedience to Satan and sinned and fell, we fell in him. Talks about that in Romans, doesn't it? In him we fell. From Adam we fell. You see? It's exactly the same principle. And it's the same with Eve as well. Because she came from Adam. She was part of him. She was taken out of him. So she fell as well. She was deceived, but she fell with Adam. Because he sinned. He, he, he knew it was wrong. And he sinned. No, exactly the same way. Let's read in, in, um, in uh, Romans 6. Wonderful. <laughs> you see, when you see God's economy and how he reckons... Romans 5, sorry. Hallelujah. Or is it 96? So I got that wrong. Romans 6. 6, 3 to 14. Know ye not that so many of us were baptized into Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. And like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God, even so we should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in his likeness of his death, we should also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be annulled, and henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is free from sin, and if we be dead with Christ, we shall believe we shall live with him. Isn't that wonderful? And in knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, and, hath no, and death hath no more dominion over him, in that he died, he died unto sin once, and in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon or count yourselves to be dead, even unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lusts thereof in its desires. Neither yield your members as these things, all your things, as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourself unto God as those which are alive from dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto unto God, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under law, but under grace. So he reckons you dead, because you have believed on the name of Jesus. You believe what Jesus did on the cross for you. And so he put you in there, with him. He reckons you dead. And he reckons you alive. He reckons you seated in heavenly places. He reckons you righteous. Now, you aren't righteous in yourself. 
You might be becoming more righteous in your life, but you're not righteous in yourself. And there are people get wrong. I'm righteous. I'm... No, he's righteous. I'm righteous because I'm in him. And he reckoned me and counted me in him. Exactly the same way as he did with Adam. Exactly the same he did with this, this picture of, Mel, of, of Melchizedek. With Abraham. Can you see? This is the way God counts. It's a different way to the way we count. But he counts us righteous. And we have to count ourselves righteous in him. We have to count ourselves dead. Let's count like God. Let's use his calculator, not ours. <laughs> yeah. His calculator, not ours. It's not about what you do, in a sense. It's about who you are. And if you, knew, if you know, you know who you are, what you are, then you'll do what you should be to do. It's the wrong way around. If you do that, people think. You see, this is what, what my wife was saying. Why is it? It doesn't seem very fair that there are some people who are much better than Christians. Why God should send them to hell? It doesn't seem fair. What if we, but they don't realise. People think that they're sinners because they sin. And if you don't sin much, you're not much of a sinner. But in fact, it's the other way around. You sin because you're a sinner. They get it the wrong way around. You see? It is. You see? It's because the nature's wrong. And our nature's now been changed. <laughs> and this is the new covenant. I'll put the law in the hearts. I'll change them inside. If I don't, you can't do it on the outside because they can't do it. They need the inside changing. And that's what the, then he is the mediator of it. It's not about you. It is about you. You have to outwork it. You outwork your repentance and, and all the other, your sanctification. You have to work at it. You have to put it to death. But you're only doing, you're obeying the new life inside you. Not the old life you used to be. That's gone. The old man's gone. Just got the flesh still. And that's what causes the problem. All the problems in the church are the flesh usually. People visit it's the devil, but most of the time it's the flesh. He uses our flesh. <laughs> but most of the time it's us, isn't it? So here we have, this is a wonderful thing, isn't it? Because we're in Christ, because he's our high priest, he's done all these things for us. Hallelujah. Right, I've got another, right, here we go. Let's go to Hebrews 7, 11. Oh, I'm in Romans now. They put looking at Romans. Hallelujah. Hebrews is a fantastic book because it gives us such a foundation. Hebrews 7 from 11. Right. Now we saw he's talking about the perfection of the priesthood. Verse 11. And he said, there should rise an order of, after the order of Melchizedek, not after the order of Aaron. I think I've done most of that. I think I've spoke most of that out at the moment. See where we are going. And it was a word of oath which he made. Here we go, yes. It, it, he, he made a word of oath when he said, after the order of Melchizedek. And he guess what he's talking about? The, most priests weren't made with a word of oath. But Jesus is made with a word of oath from God that he would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And he, he said, most, and Jesus was a, 
a surety of a better testament. They truly were many priests because they not suffered to continue by reason of death. They died. But this man, because he continues forever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. The same yesterday, today, and forever. Wherefore? Now because of this, he is all also able to save them to the uttermost. Because it's unchangeable. It doesn't change. Then that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. So we don't have a priesthood where sometimes if a priest, you know, this is what happens in church, you get a church and somebody get a really good vicar and then suddenly you all go along and he's gone to another church. And you all feel bereft and they all go charging off somewhere else. But that doesn't happen with us, with him. He's liveth forever. He never changes. Our priest is the same forever. An everlasting priest. Everlasting. Isn't that wonderful? Hallelujah. He comes, who such a high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinner, made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as these high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins, then for the peoples for this. He did once when he offered up himself. This is the wonderful thing. This is a wonderful thing. Not only is he our priest, but he's our sacrifice too. He came as a priest to offer sacrifices, didn't he? Hallelujah. Isn't it wonderful? He came to offer sacrifices for us. He's our high priest. He comes to give gifts. First of all, we look at the gifts. What were the gifts? The priest offered, remember in that we read that a bit in 5e, the priest came to offer gifts and sacrifices, so they came with their, with their love gifts and their thank offerings, didn't they? And let's see where, what it says here about Jesus in 2 Corinthians 9, 15. Hallelujah. He came offering gifts and sacrifices. In 9, 2 Corinthians 9, 15. Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. Jesus is the gift. Isn't he? He's the gift. He offered himself as a gift up unto God. He's our gift. But also in Ephesians 5, we find something lovely. Ephesians 5, 25 to 27. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot, wrinkle, any such thing, that it should be holy and without blemish. And not only is he a gift to us, but we're a gift to him. He presents us as a gift to God, a holy church. You've been presented a gift to God as a holy church. Look in Colossians 1, 22. Hallelujah. 
You were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. Yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in his sight. Hallelujah. He presents us as a gift to his to Father. Isn't it wonderful? <laughs> you didn't know you were a gift. Isn't that wonderful? We're a gift to God. We've been presented to God as a gift, a gift for his son, a bride. Hallelujah. We're the gift. Isn't it wonderful? <laughs> I never thought myself as a gift. Isn't it wonderful? He, but he offers us up as a gift, doesn't he? Because he's our high priest. But he offers himself up also as this sacrifice, as we've already looked. He offers himself up as an eternal sacrifice. And he has always been offering himself up as a sacrifice. The picture of him is that for the whole of time is sacrifice. We get it in Genesis again, don't we? When he came as a high priest, a priest, and he, he, he slaughtered some animal or other, we have no idea what, and covered them, didn't he? With this, these skins. And now somebody had to die. Something had to die for that, didn't they? And so uh, he is a, a sacrifice is pictured in a, all the way through Genesis. You'll find sacrifice. Amazingly, how often when you start looking in Genesis, Genesis, uh, we get Genesis four four where we have Cain and Abel offering sacrifices, don't we? And one was accepted. And one wasn't. Hallelujah. Abraham offered it. In, we can look at, well, Noah offered a sacrifice, didn't he? After he came in the ark. All the time, you notice, you start noticing it, they were doing it all the time. Because there, there was this thing that their sacrifice has been needed because of sin. There was a sacrifice, an offering of sacrifice unto God. And uh, Noah did one. We, Abraham, let's read Abraham. He said, he started to build an altar. And uh, in verse 12, 7, the Lord appeared unto Abraham, unto this seed will I give you the land. And he built an altar unto the Lord, and he appeared there. He built an altar. And he'd keep going on throughout, and you see all these altars being built. And we'll, we'll look at chapter 22, 18 which is the most fantastic one we see, where he says to Abraham to go and offer his son on the altar. And in verse, verse 18, have I got that right, 22, 18? further on. Well, verse 8, I've got that wrong, I've put a 1 in there. Abraham said, they were going up and uh, he said, the son said in verse 7, behold the fire of the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? So obviously they were very, very uh, used to giving offerings. Because he, you know, he expected there to be a lamb. So obviously they'd done it quite a few times before and Abraham said my son God will provide himself a lamb 
for a burnt offering. So they both went off together. And we know that, you know the story so well. But how God provided himself a lamb. He provided a ram, caught in the thicket by his horns. The reason he was caught by his horns is so that he wasn't a damaged. So he didn't damage himself. Because if he was caught by his coat, he would have been an, um, an impure sacrifice. But he caught him by his ram, by its horns in the thicket. So he never, he wasn't damaged. So it was a pure, holy sacrifice to God. Perfect. Isn't God wonderful? How we see these, these pictures of Jesus in the Old Testament. A perfect lamb, perfect ram for the sin of our lives. Isn't it wonderful? And so here we see that Jesus is the lamb. John the Baptist says, behold the lamb of God. And we see it throughout the whole of um, the, the New Testament. He is the Lamb. He was the, in, in this look in, in Revelation, well, we, we can read in, let's go back to Hebrews again, Hebrews 9. nine, nine. Hebrews is a fantastic. It says, these things, the Holy Ghost in verse 8 of chapter 9, signifying the way to the holiest was not made manifest while the first tabernacle was yet standing, which is a figure of the time then present in which they offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did service perfect. But Christ, being a high priest in verse 11, of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, as I say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered once into the holy place, having attained eternal redemption for us. So he is this eternal redemption. Jesus, the same yesterday, today, and forever. If we look in uh, Revelation 13, Very famous verse. Revelation 13, verse 8. Have I got that? And all that dwell on the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life, of the Lamb, slain, from the foundation of the world. Jesus was the same yesterday, today and forever. He was always been a lamb because he was slain before the foundation of the world. You see, he wanted these Hebrew people to see that this man, Jesus, wasn't just a prophet. He was this God-man who was eternal. And, he was, and this is what I think was happening. When he was speaking at the end, he couldn't contain himself. He was saying, he's the same. Yesterday, today, forever. This man, Jesus, was a God as well. And he's eternal. And he couldn't cope with not keeping it in. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. We find if we look on in, in the Revelation, let's carry on. Let's go into verse 5, chapter 5. Look. Who's worthy to open the seals of the book? 
No man in heaven, nor on earth was able to open these books. And they wept. And then he said, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals there. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne of the four beasts, in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as hath been slain. And you see this lamb. Worthy is the lamb at the end. Worthy is the lamb. It's all about the lamb. He appears so much in Revelation. It's this lamb. He's the lamb before the world began. He's the lamb for us while we're on this earth. And he's the lamb forever. He's eternal lamb. All these things are eternal. They don't fail. They're the same yesterday, today and forever. Now we think about that very often about healing or something we need. But it's more deeper than that. It's bigger than that. He is this person who is eternal from before time. And he's come down and, and caused us to have a relationship with him and to go to heaven with him and to live with him and him to come and live with us. Isn't that an incredible thing? And it's better. And he's saying to them, you can't turn back. How can you turn back to something which is temporal when you've got something which is eternal? Something which is going to go on forever. The Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. And he'll sit in heaven and fill heaven with his glory. And we'll sit there and have fellowship with him forever. Wow, this lamb, isn't it wonderful? He wasn't just a priest, but he was a sacrifice as well. He was a gift as well. He was everything. It's all better because it's on a better footing. It's on an eternal footing. It's nothing to do with man anymore. It's to do with him. It's not on my shoulders. It's on his shoulders, because he's a surety of it. Can you see? It's all about him. And it makes our life so much easier when we realize it's about him. No, we have responsibility. Yes, we do. Most definitely. But it's all about him. The one who's, who was from eternity to eternity, who is and was and is to come. Now, you notice that. It's an interesting. He didn't say who was and is and is to come. He said who is. Because he wants us to know he is the same today as he was yesterday and in the future. It's today. That's why he put is first. He puts the present tense first. Because he wants us to know. And we say, well, that's what he was in the past and that's what he's going to be in the future. But he wants us to know that's what he is now. Hallelujah. Now, he is and was and is to come. Isn't that interesting? We would say he was and is, but he says he is and was. Because <laughs> he's God and he does it his own way. <laughs> but it's always a point to it. When you see it, you realise why he says it that way round. You think, ask questions when you read, why does he say it like that? <laughs> why do you say it like that, God? And he'll answer you. He might not answer you for a few weeks, but he'll answer you. And you're, suddenly you'll find, you think, oh, that's why he said it like that. Because there was a reason. There's a reason for absolutely every word and the way it's put together in the original Greek, in the original. Absolutely. Amazing. He's an amazing God. Hallelujah. Now, it says, it said, um, one thing about Jesus is that he always lived in heaven. <laughs> Let's read this. He talks about it in John 
1, 2. His, his home is heaven. He came down here to hoik us out and take us back with him. But his home and his place is in heaven. We can see this in John 1. Isn't he wonderful? When you suddenly see what he's done for us, he makes you so grateful because we didn't deserve any of it. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. And the same was in the beginning with God. Hallelujah. He's God. And he was with God. Right from the beginning, from eternity, before, before anything happened, he was there with his Father and the Holy Spirit. And it's called the doctrine of self-sufficiency. He didn't need anybody. Some people think God was lonely. I remember a song years ago, God was getting lonely, and so he, he created you and me. And you think, no, well, if God was getting lonely, he needed to do something, but that means he wasn't God. Because God is self-sufficient in himself, and he doesn't need us. He doesn't need us, but he chooses to, to need us, chooses to use us, chooses to love us. And that's what's wonderful. God told me a, long to a few years ago, and it really helped me in my home life. He said, love's a choice, not a feeling. That helps because God chose to love us. So I chose you. Didn't need to chose me. Didn't need to. Not because I did anything. He just chose me. And that's it. He said, why did he choose me? Because he chose you. Because <laughs> he's God. You see, he's self-sufficient in himself. Hallelujah. Romans 3. Oh, sorry, not Romans 3. John 3, 13. A lot of versions take this out. No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. If you've got a new king, some of the new versions, they don't have that bit in it. But it's in my Bible. <laughs> Jesus was living in heaven. Continually. He went... Quiet, up the mountain, time with Father in heaven. He lived in heaven. And when they saw him on the mountain of transfiguration, I reckon that's what he was like when he was up the mountain on his own anyway. <laughs> he just happened to be with him. <laughs> glowing with the presence of his Father. And if we can get him that place with him, we'll glow too. <laughs> and we won't be saying, oh, let's make a tabernacle. No, no, no. He takes us up there. John 17, 5. This is his great priest. Oh now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory I had with thee before the world was. Then he says he takes us, as Gordon was talking about, he takes us into the same glory, into the same fellowship with him. Isn't that an incredible thing? And we have this new tabernacle. Not only do we have a new mediator and a new covenant and a new sacrifices and a new priesthood. We have a new tabernacle. We have heaven opened to us. Isn't that wonderful? Let's read about that. In Hebrews 8 and then we'll finish there. Hebrews 8. This is wonderful, isn't it? What he has done for us. 8, 1 to 2. Now these things we have spoken. This is a sum. 
We have such a high priest who was set at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of a sanctuary of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. Hallelujah. This is a heavenly tabernacle which we enter into. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that a fantastic thing? A new. We enter in to a new tabernacle. It's there the tabernacle floated about and eventually disappeared. But this one is the eternal tabernacle. We will go up there eventually. But we can enter now into this tabernacle, into these heavenly places. Let's look in 9, verse, chapter 9, verse 6 to 8. Now, he talks, so when these things were thus ordained, the priest went always to the first tabernacle, that's the first part of the tabernacle, accomplishing the services of God, but into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Spirit, this signifying that the way into the holiness of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was standing, which was a figure for the time then present. So it's a picture of the, in which offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the surface perfect as pertaining to the conscience. So the inside was not changed. That's what he's saying here. All right? Couldn't. But in verse 11, but Christ being a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats, but by his own blood, entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal, eternal redemption for us. Hallelujah. Eternally redeemed. You're eternally brought back by God to go into his tabernacle and fellowship with him. Isn't it wonderful? He's, he is, this is such a wonderful gospel. It is so wonderful Hallelujah. But Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven himself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. He stands, that mediator, that priest, now stands in heaven on your behalf. On your behalf. Isn't that fantastic? That's why it's looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But more, more than that, more than that, more than that, let's see what's happened to us. 2 Corinthians 6. And I'm going to finish on this a little bit. 2 Corinthians 6, 16. And this is, so, this is wonderful. Remember his, his prayer? He said he wanted to come down and have fellowship with us. They might be one with us. 6, 16. No, you're not. Hang on. It's just the one. No, verse 19. No, you're not. That your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost. You were bought with a price. That's with the redemption. Bought, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which is God's. That's our responsibility. We are now the temple of the Holy Ghost. We are the new tabernacle. 
Isn't that fantastic? 1 Corinthians 3, 6. Oh, no, I had 1 Corinthians 6 there. 6, 19. Six, two, sorry, 2 Corinthians 6, 16. I got the wrong one there. It's just the same sort of thing. 2 Corinthians. One was 1 Corinthians. I got these confused. 2 Corinthians 6, 16. says this. Where am I? Getting my Corinthians all marked up. 2 Corinthians 6, 16. Ye are the temple of a living God. If God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, I will be their God and they will be my people. Hallelujah. He becomes our God and we become his people. We become his temple and he lives in us. This is what he's talking about when he says this, these things about the Lamb of God being the before the foundation because Jesus is the same yesterday today forever he's all these things we've been talking about are eternal they don't they don't fizzle out they are in heaven eternal for us isn't that so fantastic that we can live in this wonderful relationship with the living God who is pure and holy and yet we can approach him. Isn't that fantastic? Isn't that a fantastic thing that God has done for us? Yeah. Hebrews, I'm just going to finish with Hebrews 12. This is one of my most favourite verses. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised your shame, and is set at the right hand of God. This is him, our high priest. Consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be weary and faint in your minds. Can you see why he's saying that? Because they were weary and they were going to give in. He said, he says, for you have not resisted unto blood the striving against sin. There was, a resist, there was a striving to be conform to these people who wanted them to go into the sacrifices and they were pressurising them and he says, don't do it. You don't need to do it because Jesus has done it all. You don't need to go back to it. You don't need to go into sin. This, any of this sort of stuff which is not of faith is of sin. And you don't have to go back into it. You don't have to do it, he says. You don't have to go back into that. And we can live in this newness of, of, of life in Christ. And then this, um, he says, and this is a wonderful thing. I want to finish with this. All right. And this is something the Lord spoke. I said that before, didn't I? <laughs> 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 I keep seeing verses. The Lord spoke to me about this verse. He said, we have not come to a mount that might be touched that burn with fire, nor with blackness and darkness and tempest, the sound of the trumpets and the voice of words, which voice that they heard entreated that it would not be spoken unto them, for they could not endure that which was commanded. And so much as a beast touched the mountain, it was thrust through with a dart. So terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. 
That's what we were like before we became Christians, before God. And that's what everyone out there is like. They're going to face a God like that, unless they've had their sins taken away. That's really serious stuff. They're going to face, they're going to come to the mount and they're going to hear the voice and they're going to know they haven't kept the command of God, which is they haven't obeyed him in believing on Christ. And they've turned their back on him. But we haven't come to that. He says, but you have come to Mount Zion. (laughs) The city of the living God. Hallelujah. The new temple because of Christ. The heavenly Jerusalem, not the earthly Jerusalem. The heavenly one. To innumerable company of angels, not just a load of priests, but angels. To the general assembly of the church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven. Your name's written in heaven. You don't know what it is. You wouldn't recognize it because it's going to be a new one. <laughs> but it's there. <laughs> My role is to call up, I'm up in, I've got a role in yonder. Hallelujah. <laughs> Hallelujah. To the God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. We'll be one of those. Won't we? And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks of better things of Abel. So he says, see, you don't refuse him that speaks from heaven. Don't refuse. Listen to him, it says. He's saying, listen to him. For the voice that shook the earth will now promise saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth only, but also heaven. When God speaks, he's going to shake everything. Everything. When he speaks at the end of the age, he's going to shake everything. And it's all going to come to nothing. And it's all going to be rolled up. And we're going to live with him for eternity. Isn't that a wonderful thing? But it starts with looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Isn't he wonderful? Hasn't he done an incredible work, a secure work? It's so secure because it's based on Jesus, who is our surety, who lives forever. So our salvation lives. Everything is eternal because he's eternal. Isn't it wonderful? Let's get our eyes off ourselves and off all the stuff and back and look unto Jesus who starts and finishes our walk with him. Amen. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your glory. Thank you for you put us in him when we didn't deserve it. You've done so much for us. And we just pray you keep our minds and hearts secure in you as we go home and we face life. Thank you, Jesus, our overcomer. Amen.